the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And yet, it is not the dulcet tones of Seth Liebson's voice coming from your radio. I am Hugh Hallman, joined by Lewis Hallman. We are here filling in for Seth because he is getting ready for the Crisis at the Border event that's taking place this evening at 6 o'clock at the Scottsdale uh, Embassy Suites at the corner of Scottsdale Road and Chaparral Road. You can check out uh, 960 The Patriots' website, and there are still a few tickets available. If you'd like to participate in this evening's event, you'll hear the likes of Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, Congressman Andy Biggs, and Seth Liebson, of course, will be leading the event uh, as its host and MC, we uh, hope we'll see you there tonight. We've been talking about populism and ultimately how that led us to a point where there's not only too much money in politics because of the uh, 17th and 16th Amendments giving us the income tax and direct election of senators, but how there's too much power in politics. Our federal government has drawn to itself exactly what our founders warned against, and that is to create a government that was so large and behemoth that it would attract the most uh, capable of us to engage in politics, that we would spend our time in politics instead of uh, in decent, uh, productive activities. C.S. Lewis, in 1945, wrote about just this thing, and I quote, a sick society must think much about politics, as a sick man must think much about his digestion. To ignore the subject may be fatal cowardice for one as for the other. But if either comes to regard it as the natural food of the mind, if either forgets that we think of such things only in order to be able to think of something else, then what we have undertaken for the sake of health has become itself a new and deadly disease, unquote. It's a disorder that we are now so fixed on politics as the most important thing we can be engaged in, in large part to protect ourselves, our own selves, against the encroachment of government into our lives. And that, arguably, Lewis and I would say, I actually is a result of populism. Well, uh, not only that, actually, I, I love the point that you just made because it, it ties in so well with our talking point about other American institutions having disappeared in the first half of the 20th century. This would be the decline of churches, the unions, uh, uh, other professional associations, what have you, that where we used to see a lot of the communal support that then government has replaced uh, subsequently. But one of the... Um, the the reason that, that I found this so interesting, though, was that as um, as politics have engaged and pulled all the power to the center, we have ended up disemboweling yes. the rest of our society. And we're going to turn to Travis here, who wants to talk about populism. He's calling in all the way from Redding, California. Travis, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Thanks for taking my call. We're delighted. Um, Welcome. Thanks. Yeah, I agree with you 100% with uh, every conservative bone of my body. 
Um, anyway, I would say that uh, Trump is a product of our populist, um, you know, current uh, uh, structure of government, but not the cause of it. Agreed. And the the real issue is, you know, having the incentive to try to change it. Um, and also, I think, though, the the mechanism, I think that one of the things that we've been talking about here today is that we can't let leadership do its regular thing. The old idea of sending us someone off to Washington for, to fight for us is wrong because that fight is necessarily on the old terms that have led us to where we all are now. So the real question is, how, how do we how do we alter the terms? We're, we're not sitting here, Travis, saying that Donald Trump caused the problems we face today. He is certainly uh, a leader who ran on many philosophical bases. There are many, many people I talk to who say, I agree with his policies. And generally, they can then articulate and do articulate the philosophical underpinnings that ties the bases to conservatism about why going after China for the theft of intellectual property and the destruction of our uh, partial destruction of our manufacturing base was so important. This society, this country's interests require as a national security matter that we have the ability to manufacture the the in essential things that require life. But Lewis has made the point in uh, prior shows about the fact that uh, the U.S. is least dependent on international trade of most countries on the planet. That's exactly right. So we, as, For example, a, as a proportion of our trade, only are about I think eight, involve about eight percent of our economy in in exchange with the rest of the world. Compare that to a nation like Germany, where the figure is closer to forty percent, and you you start to see that while this shifting economic policy was part of the piece, I, I really do think that, and as you said, Travis, that the issues lie much deeper than that. This is but a symptom. Any other thoughts, Travis? Yeah. Um, well. Like I said, you know, it's the incentive. You know, uh, right now they're serving the incentive of large, you know, big business, and they need to start serving the, the, you know, it. Well, how do we incentivize them then, Travis? Know, right. That's that's the real the big question is because currently the incentives are such that big business has an easy and obvious path to get what it wants. It has the most immediate contact, and it has the most money with which to get what it wants. The, the specific interest always trumps the general interest, So, you, and no pun intended there. You and I, Travis and yeah. Lewis, we have very generalized interests in what would make our lives better uh, within our society, and not much of it is dependent on the federal government delivering anything. But a business that is in the, oh, let's say, uh, defense industry has very strict and clear focus on what the federal government can offer, because there aren't all that many purchasers of defense systems and defense weapons outside of the U.S. federal government. And therefore, they have a lot more incentive and reason to impact that conversation. I don't even think that it needs to be quite that specific. You could even use the case of something like sugar subsidies, right? I, I would have a great interest in, in removing sugar subsidies because it's inefficient and it means that we pay more for quite a variety of things. And the average job as a result of sugar subsidies costs taxpayers about $600,000 a year. But because the sugar company stands more to lose directly from those investments, proportionally, it's an all-or-nothing game for the sugar company. But for me, it's only saving me a couple dollars every year. 
That's and the so issue. The other issue is that the concentration of incentives matter because – and the whole point – the reason that special interests are successful and exist at all is because of this exact uh, uh, phenomenon where the – what they want is not costly to everybody else – and so no one else is particularly motivated to get in the way. Which brings us right back to the main point, that we have put so much authority into the federal government to regulate our economic lives that it has now generated not just the resources from income taxation, but the uh, regulation of economic activity that has massive economic impact to those people who would spend their time instead lobbying the federal government for different regulatory structures. Not only that, but it has also created a belief in many of the population that the uh, that the uh, administration and regulation of commerce is both just and necessary by on behalf of the government. Lest uh, we all be taken advantage of because we're not bright enough to figure out uh, whether or not uh, we're better off doing X or Y. Well, there certainly was in the early days reasons for regulation of certain elements of commerce. It's an economic understanding that there are things called moral hazard problems. If I can impose on people the costs of my activity or I can hide from them because they don't have an incentive individually to investigate as thoroughly as one might want to whether or not the stuff I'm making is poison or food. Milk pasteurization in the early 20th, uh, 20th century and many drug cases now are good examples of why this is effective in, in many cases. So we do need and recognize, even as an economic matter, government to be able to play the uh, the honest broker to make sure that people who are manufacturing things do do so in a way that is does not subject us all to risk, and none of us would have the incentive individually to investigate those things specifically in the same way that Lewis doesn't have an incentive to go fight the sugar subsidy because it only would save him a couple of dollars a year, while the sugar producer has absolutely an incentive to make sure his interests are protected he and he dedicate gets his subsidy. existence to that. There you have it. We have Brian and Phoenix joining us on the show. Brian, you're on the air. What do you have to say? Uh, <laughs> More than more than we have time. Uh, but thank you for taking my call. Well, you want you want to hang on for just a second? We'll pick you up at the end of the break. Uh, I don't care. I, uh, I, well, let's do that. I, I'd, I'd like to hear what Brian has to say. Is that okay, Brian? Okay. We'll be right back. Yep, fine. Thank you. So, in, I'm Hugh Hallman. He's Lewis Hallman. We're on KKNT 960, The Patriot. We look forward to your calls at 602-508-0960. We're going to be back in about 35. No, we're going to leave in about 35 seconds. Bill's done it to me again. Seth likes to have lots of music bumpers here. And I, on the other hand, like to go right up against the, the, the end moment just to see if I can do it. Uh, we do want to thank Seth, who's going to be at the uh, Crisis at the Border event this evening at 6 o'clock out in Scottsdale. We look forward to seeing you there this evening. Uh, I'm Hugh. He's Lewis. We'll be right back. One of Bill's favorites to bring us back into the show. I'm Hugh Hallman with Lewis Hallman. We are filling in for Seth Liebson here on the Seth Liebson Show. Brian, we apologize profusely. Just before the break, we brought you in and realized it was too short a time. So now it's all you, Brian. Well, thank you. I appreciate you taking my call. First, I want to say thank you to both of you for the work you've done on that show over the last year plus. 
in in supporting and, and showing how the uh, the the virus was way overblown and and just a, a farce played upon the American people. It, it certainly helped those of us who who intrinsically felt it or knew it or just rationally came to that conclusion to have something that straightened out the mess that we were getting from the media and the, and our government. So. Well, thank, thank you, you Brian, for that very much. Uh, we'll we'll actually use you as the caller to help us get back into that a little bit, just to make a little fun of it. But go ahead. You had money and power in politics. Yes. Um, uh, at this point, and I'm 65, so I saw it the the creep from the uh, from the 60s, where they went into education and now into politics, and now they control so much of it. The, uh, I don't know that I'll see it change in my lifetime back because people think they can vote themselves something for nothing. But the way to get it is to get after the money. And I do have one thought of how to do this because I have other people that talk to me about it, and that's to have a, a, a convention of the states and put two new amendments to the Constitution in, one for term limits and one for a balanced budget. Here's an idea for balanced budget. I'll run it past you. I've thought about this, written it a few times. Can't seem to quite get traction for a variety of reasons. It's because a constitutional amendment is tough. But a balanced budget constitutional amendment, and it would be this. Uh, Back in 1972, effectively, Richard Nixon was exercising the line item veto. And the Supreme Court uh, overrode his ability to do that, saying that it was really interfering with Congress's ability to allocate spending, that the president could not exercise a line item veto. It was a zero or uh, all or nothing uh, signature on the budget. And the idea would be something like this that would balance the powers. And that is to say that Congress has the ability to balance the budget. And if it fails to balance the budget, then the president may do so. And therefore, Congress has the incentive to get the budget in balance so it gets to spend the spoils where it wants to. Uh, the members of uh, whoever's representing folks in Congress, whether it's D or R, same as the House or same as the presidency or not. And then the president would have that opportunity. Then we no longer have the buck passing routine that's going on between uh, our legislative body, the, uh, the House and Senate, and the presidency, each blaming the other for the uh, budget deficits, because each would have the opportunity to balance the budget. What do you think? I think it's better than what we have right now, which is no restraint at all, um, uh, and not even a conversation about it. Um, but you'll never stop the buck from being passed because it's a f- struggle over power. Well, I, so, I think actually, Brian, that that very that very neatly might because what it does is it weaponizes their reputations against them. Because if the if the legislature is trying to get its budget passed and fails to balance it, it then goes to the president who could then theoretically pick and choose up and down and grants him effectively sole autonomy over a vast swath of the legislature's power. If I was in Congress, I would do everything that I could feasibly do to avoid this most disastrous outcome because God forbid it show that I'm not actually needed it at all. Why do you think you need a uh, convention of the states in order to get these amendments passed? Because it will be uh, years before we're able to put the people in Congress who actually look at the way this country was founded 
in that you're not supposed to be a professional politician. You're not supposed to and be able to enrich yourself in a political career at the expense of your your citizenry. And uh, uh, to to make that seminal change because they have no interest in term limits and they have no interest in a balanced budget. Uh, but I, and we're not and we're we're getting I mean like Republicans and we have so many rhinos now that it's frightening to me that that they don't even understand that they run around saying I'm conservative I'm conservative and they have no idea what they're talking about. Well, I would argue that we need to have that conversation because. Uh, one person's rhino is another uh, person's real Republican. I've I've had those battles in my life, not to yes. pick the fight with you in this instance. In fact, that's kind of the fight about Donald Trump versus Lynn Cheney and uh, who's the real Republican. Each side is saying you shouldn't be saying bad things about Republicans. But the reality is those people attacking Lynn Cheney for uh, attacking Donald Trump forget that Donald Trump spent a lot of time attacking Republicans. I have a concern about that generally, and I believe I followed Ronald Reagan uh, uh, to the greatest degree and, and learned from him that, of course, his 11th commandment, do not speak ill of any Republican, but also do not treat an 80 percent friend like a 20 percent enemy. And part yeah, of our I, gravest challenge these days is that we keep doing exactly that. Go ahead, Brian. No, I'm on, I'm on board with both of you because uh, Ronald Reagan was I, – I, I was fortunate enough to experience his pregnancy, his uh, presidency, and uh, uh, I, I, he's to me. We could use another half a dozen of him in so a row. There was something that you said that kind of stuck out to me, Brian, and I'd like to maybe push back at it a little bit. And it was that you wanted this to be fundamentally a conservative enterprise, and I, I'm not entirely sure it has to be. I think that there's room and will to move this thing bipartisan, and I think it actually would also grant us a fairly significant amount of help in getting this thing done. The, the, the issue is that both parties have an issue where their very connected insiders are effectively selling out the rest of the parties for political benefit and fiduciary benefits. The $6 trillion in the COVID expenditure is a great example of that. Exactly. We ended up with both parties happily holding hands in order to spend $6 trillion of our grandchildren's money. The institutionalists no, it, in both it, parties. It, it, well, that, that's exactly right. And you, you have to... So you, you're not going to change those people because it works for them. Right. We so, have to get other people in there. So in the spirit of not treating uh, 80% friends like 20% enemies... I wonder if it's not possible, because I, I suspect a great swath of the left being very interested in questions of fairness, they're probably fairly sympathetic to a lot of these issues of elite power. And there are probably a lot of natural allies over discrete, separate issues here that maybe a lot more progress could happen than we think. It would require very careful maneuvering, though, to make it happen. I want to pick up on something you also added, Brian, which was the idea of term limits. And here's what's the unique piece. Every state's uh, congressman are good people. It's the bad people from other states that are, that are bankrupting us. And in Absolutely. fact, that is ultimately exactly the problem. The, the challenge for term limits is that it is never in the state of Arizona's interest to limit its congressmen and senators in their terms. It's in our interest to limit other people's terms. Why do I say that? Because when we had uh, the Kennedy clan running Massachusetts, 
it wasn't in Massachusetts' interest to end Ted Kennedy's reign of terror. It was in Arizona's interest that we do so. And as a result of that failure that we do are not willing to limit our own state's power, we end up with every state raping the government trough, stealing from the Treasury to bring home even more uh, ham and pork. Uh, to the home crowd and feed it to their friends and family. I'm Hugh Hallman. He's Lewis Hallman. We are filling in for Seth Liebson on the Seth Liebson Show. We are grateful to our friend for that. And we look forward to your calls at 602-508-0960. We'll be back in just a moment. Almost tempted to let that play for a few minutes, aren't you? Yes, that's the Bare Naked Ladies. Uh, we're delighted to come back with the Bare Naked Ladies. Uh, but uh, in fact, we've been talking about uh, ultimately that we have a, a movement afoot that's really been going on for 120 years. And that is we have populism that has grown up. And it was a populism in the early 1900s that gave us gave rise to a direct uh, election of senators because we didn't like those elites in our legislatures electing senators. So now we have the worst of all possible worlds, directly elected senators who have so much money going into their troughs. None of us as voters really have a very great influence. And we got the income tax uh, because we wanted to punish rich people. And now so much money is in the federal trough. Uh, that it has attracted all kinds of power and authority. It's not that there's just too much money in politics in campaigns. There's too much money in Washington, D.C., which has then created too much power in the base. And here's why. James Madison understood that we did not want the passions of the people to be driving our politics. And he wrote in Federalist 10 that uh, a faction is, quote, a number of citizens, whether amounting to a minority or a majority of the whole, who are united and actuated by some common impulse of passion or of interest adverse to the rights of other citizens or to the permanent and aggregate interests of the community. That is to say, unquote, that is to say that you would drag your passions and use the power of government to bludgeon your opposition. And that seems to be what's occurred here. We've got Mark on the phone who wants to... Uh, uh oh, wait a minute, Lewis. Before before we jump to Mark, Sorry, Mark. fast, and we will do that, Mark. I apologize. Uh, the the quote you just read from the Federalist Papers reminded me of an argument that I was making to you recently about the nature of populism and identity politics. Now I'm going to try and make this carefully, so no one take any offense until I'm done. Uh, but my argument effectively is that both movements define themselves oppositionally, so they 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 let the other sort of set the tone, whether it's the elites or the oppressors, you know, set the tone for the debate. And the big difference between them is because both of them boil down fundamentally to issues of representation. The issue with, with populism, though, is that it seeks representation for its adherence in, in national leadership capacity, whereas identity politics is very often looking for a similar thing, a similar type of power, but what it focuses on generally is cultural control rather than uh, explicit uh, leadership positions or intellectual tradition. So that sets our frame. Mark, uh, you wanted to talk about Republicans getting on the same page. You're on the air. Yes, uh, uh, thanks for taking my call, gentlemen. Uh, 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 of course, you've set me back a little bit in uh, in my original thought with the, the 
bringing up the the contrast between the populism uh, approach and uh, what I was going to say, I, I simply wanted to put it out there that uh, you make a great point about both parties effectively working in opposition to the other. Uh, my concern is that lately, for a number of decades, my perception has been that on one side of the aisle, the Democrat Party side of the aisle, they're much better at lining up as a party. And uh, although they, there may be some argument and schism uh, amongst party members uh, during a debate, when it comes time to vote, they're very good at lining up with the party. And um, on the Republican side of the aisle, it seems as though, and I think part of it is just uh, conservatives tend to be a little more individualistic. And there's less of that, oh, we got to line up as the party uh, to further our agenda. Um, I do really appreciate your points that you've made about populism and uh, the inherent conundrum of uh, wanting to get into government to uh, bludgeon your uh, your position uh, further down the road. Because, uh, that, yeah, that is, a, that is an inherent uh, problem. I, I think I certainly I certainly think Mark, you're on to the major point that we've got identity politics and group politics driving the Democratic Party, while the Republican Party at least used to that Republican Party of my youth was a party of philosophy, and that we then, as Republicans, argue over whose philosophy is purer, uh, and each taking the position that the others are rhino, while the Democrats recognize that what brings them together under their tent is the confluence of power to advance each group's collective interests and that they have to hang together in order to achieve that while Republicans are more focused on the philosophy. Maybe that's sort of it. I actually disagree entirely, but we're going to probably have to get into it when we come back, given the uh, timing of the segment. Then, Mark, thank you for the call that's going to lead to me and Lewis arguing uh, vociferously when we come back. I'm Hugh Hallman. He's Lewis Hallman. We're on KKNT 960, The Patriot. Thank you to Seth for letting us fill in. We will be right back. Dolly Parton, I think. Thank goodness. I'm Hugh Hallman. We're filling in uh, for Seth Liebson. Lewis Hallman, my uh, smarter and better-looking son, uh, was spurred on by Mark to start picking a fight. So, Mark, we uh, we want to attribute this following fight to you. So the, we, we left the break with a discussion of the differences between the two parties. And you and Mark, I think, were making the point that the Republicans— have a unified intellectual tradition, but they're more want to internally fracture, call one another rhinos, and have a hard time getting things done. Based on philosophy. Right. Whereas the Democrats, you argue, have a significantly less consistent internal philosophy, you, you would argue. But as a result, because there's not an intellectual tradition to be maintained, you argue that they can fill the ranks, close ranks, and vote in a rather in unified a block. block. Okay. okay. And you would say? I would say— Ah, no, Dad, you're wrong. I, I would say that probably differently. How many children get to do that on air? Go ahead. Well, at least this one. Um, but the the issue that I take with your argument is that I think it's it's very 
grass is always greener. And what I mean by that is this, in that you're in a position to very closely observe the Republican Party's schisms, and anyone who is a, is a Republican is able to observe them, right, because you're there for it. But you're not there. You're not an insider on the room seeing the Democratic conversation in the same way. And so I'm very leery of your ability to say that we argue more than they do internally, when in fact I think that it's quite the opposite. I think that the Republican Party does have that common philosophical grounding that you mentioned, although most of the Republican Party fractionates down into single-issue blocks. Your national security voters, your uh, uh, very religious voters, your um, fiscal conservatives, et cetera, et cetera. And the nice thing about that coalition for the Republicans is that that group does not have a lot of internal dissent in terms of its political goals. I can tie that they're splitting up is not in com- in competition. Exactly. Right. It that can, is to say they can each get a slice of the pie without being in competition for with a whole. Right. So contrast this then with the Democratic coalition where you have well, let's make that clear. So fiscal conservative issues don't come at the expense or carrying those out don't come at the expense of religious conservatives. Or national security issues, et cetera, et cetera. Well, generally. I, I would generally. disagree on that one, but okay, keep going. Very, very generally. But if you look at the composition of the Democratic Party, take the identity politics subgroups Uh, in that they are seeking ethnic minorities as constituent wings rather than any kind of intellectual basis. Uh, So one thing that you have with the Democrats is that the party is slightly larger. So that, I think, accounts for the ease of voting thing that that we are confused about potentially. But I don't see them at all as having anywhere near the kind of non-competitive dynamic that the Republicans do, simply because that if I'm a Hispanic voter interested in advocating for Hispanic interests exclusively, then that will very often come at the expense of African-American interests or women's issues or other things, where the cultural and political capital that the left work with is much more often held in common but exercised at a larger scale. One identity group's advancement comes at the expense of another identity group's opportunity to right. advance. Right, but there is a common ideology advocating for this continual revolution. We may not agree with the ideology, and we may think it's f- unbelievably full of intellectual holes, but that doesn't you know, preclude the fact that they have one. To bring us full circle, we've been talking about populism and how we got here and, and how populism uh, created— uh, in part, the problems we now face as a as a society that government has grown so large because populists sought to go after the elites that controlled power, and all we did uh, over one hundred and twenty years was add to the greater authority that the federal government has to operate, gave it lots more money, and as a result, more power has been centered into that universe. The key, is, though, is not that they went after elites. It's how they went after the elites. Understood. And I want to give an example of part of how they went after the elites is that we failed to uh, use even what Abraham Lincoln understood as the import of educating our voters. That is, individuals who are going to exercise power at the ballot box had to be well enough educated that they could not just be driven by populist passion, but could use reason to figure out what they should want and do over the long run. Is this the Lyceum address? Certainly he raised it in the Lyceum address, but what I'm bringing to is that he uh, he also supported public education as the means to assure that we would have an educated population who would then exercise their authority at the ballot box and do so 
with more limited passions and less specific self-interest, understanding that getting everything one wants today may come at the expense of what could be gotten tomorrow. That is continuing to exercise one's liberty. And when you take someone else's liberty away today, it assures that you'll lose some of your liberty tomorrow. And here we are. Uh, coming to the end of another cycle of the COVID in, in, uh, infection that we've been talking about for a year in this very segment, the third hour on Tuesdays, typically with Seth. And here's examples of how things have been so badly managed. In the state of Arizona today, we now have in our ICUs, in our uh, critical care units, we have approximately 11% of the uh, beds filled with COVID patients. Uh, uh, I I, I misspoke. 8% of beds filled with COVID patients. That was yesterday. We had 144 COVID patients. But you know what? Just a week earlier, there were 199 COVID patients. That's right. We had a reduction from 199 patients to 144 patients. I think if you do the math, that's 55 patients, a reduction in 55 patients. But if we followed the model that the brilliant reporters at our Arizona Republic would have used to report bad news, they would have said that there was a 28% reduction in COVID patients in our ICUs. That's right. There was a 28% reduction in COVID patients in just one week. We must be on a great success story. That's the biggest challenge we've had with our press this last year. Six trillion dollars got spent because we have a press of reporters made up of reporters who are so badly educated about fun with numbers that they couldn't understand how to report data in a way that would not mislead us and instead followed a narrative of panic. Uh, in our non-ICUs, uh, we also saw... Um, or, for example, in the ICU, we now have empty beds. Um, on the 24th, we had 301 empty beds. That's 17% of all ICU beds, not including surge beds, empty. Uh, just one, uh, three days before, we had only 255 empty beds. That's right. We had a reduction of empty beds uh, that was a 12% jump in empty beds. That should be great news. Why isn't that headlines in our newspaper? It's because we have a failure of education to teach our reporters about mathematics and our population so we didn't become terribly frightened. And because good news is more intellectually capturing than bad news, so the incentive is to report bad news, not good news in an attention economy. We, we also have that as well. We thank you. We'll be back in just a moment uh, to close our show. But we are delighted that Seth has allowed me and Lewis, that's Hugh Holman and Lewis Holman, to fill in for him. He is now getting ready to open the show at Crisis at the Border uh, in Scottsdale. We'll be back uh, at KKNT 960 The Patriot. And we look forward to uh, a couple of minutes left with you in just a moment. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show here as we wrap up our final hour in preparation to go see Seth and many wonderful speakers, Sebastian Gorka, Andy Biggs, and Mike Gallagher at the Crisis at the Border event in Scottsdale. I am Lewis Hallman, and I have been hosting the show today with Hugh Hallman. We've been talking about populism 
namely how it happened in the U.S. context and what its big challenges are. And I think the way that we'd like to, like to kind of summarize our, our last three hours of this is to say that populism generally has the wrong methodological approach. The, the whole idea with populism, and indeed many strains of political thought, is to send someone to Washington to fight on behalf of your interests. The problem with that is that if you do that, then in the next campaign cycle, another group can send someone to fight for their interests, and we can go back and forth fighting over the same baton endlessly, aggrieving each other all the way and never satisfying anyone. Rather, the correct way to analyze the situation is to consider how do we defang the federal government? How do we prevent it from having the ability to wage these kinds of efforts against our interests? How do we get them out of the domain of space where they are nickel and diming us, uh, choosing what we have to put on our faces, preventing us from going outside, et cetera, et cetera? And so it really does come down to this notion of why do we want what we want? It can't just be the the simple, I'm disadvantaged, I need someone to fight for me model. We've got to think more deeply and more critically about this. We should also consider that the political landscape is more complicated than it seems. There may be allies to help us with these things. If we want decentralization to happen, if we want the government out of our businesses, and if we want to encourage individual liberty, then there are goals that coincide with this to people on the left. We can sell a lot of this here as a bipartisan push if those among us who are truly sick of elites want to think about it in the long run. As I view the problem we've created, I think Lincoln identified it uh, in his Lyceum speech in, in 1838, that we have a society in which we are the authors of our future. And it requires educated citizenry to understand that getting their benefits from a elected power group in government is the surest way to consign their children and grandchildren to slavery. That as Lincoln understood that this great society was not going to be destroyed by some power leaping the seas to challenge us, but that it would be by our own doing that we would destroy the very structure of the government that was set in place to protect us so that we could understand that our society with the structures that were created could give us the greatest opportunity to exercise liberty within the boundaries of the constraints established in the Constitution. And we are greatest at risk when we toy with that. As Congress is now trying to enact H.R. 1 to change the boundaries, we are at risk. Thank you for being with us. Class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.